0: Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me.
1: Well, amen. Happy Easter. You know, I wonder how you hear that story with what ears. That's interesting this week as I was thinking about this message, knowing that as the pastor guy, I get up now and I'm going to talk about the story of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that Amanda just read to us. Uh, that I might hear it a little bit differently than than maybe some of you. And and the reason I say that is because of the upbringing that I've had. I mean, I have been interacting with this story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, uh, literally, probably from birth. Like, I'm pretty sure I didn't grasp it in my infancy, but I guarantee you that if you rewound the tape on the life of Tom and you went all the way back to when I was two or when I was three or when I was four or when I was five, on an Easter Sunday morning, where would I be? I'd be in the preschool nursery, man, and I would be sitting there, way jacked on sugar, (laughs) fighting at the table with other kids, way jacked on sugar, for the crayons so that I could inartfully color a picture of the empty tomb. That's me. I interact with this every year, and more than that, for the last 20 years, I've been interacting with it on a far more sophisticated level than a coloring book, really. Like, I've read everything the Bible has to say about it. I've read pretty much everything that everyone else has to say about it. The historians, I've read about the Romans and their practices and their guards and all of that stuff, and Jewish burial ceremonies, etc., etc. I've read all of the arguments in favor, I think. I've read all of the arguments against, I'm pretty sure. I've studied this almost somewhat obsessively and I think as a result it creates a little bit of a disability for me and the disability is this it's it's difficult for me perhaps to hear that story that Amanda just read with the same ears as somebody who just had a different background than me who hasn't been similarly obsessed and maybe who comes in today going Easter what's that Or, or I know what Easter is Tom but Good grief, man. Do you guys actually believe that stuff? Because there's like an angel in that story and there's a stone and it's rolled and then Jesus who is dead, right? And like he was actually dead and then now he's alive and he's, he's back from the dead and is that something that you guys really affirm or isn't that just kind of a nice myth, a nice story, a nice thing that we get to tell our kids once a year? What, what is it? And as Matt said at the beginning of the service, we're totally all in on it. We absolutely believe it. We've given a whole of our lives to it. We've entrusted in it for all of eternity. You can't be more in than that. But here's what else we are. We understand that it could be mystifying. And so if you're a little mystified by the fact that someone would believe that Christ, who died, actually then also was raised from the dead, you know, just know that you're not alone. I mean, people all over the world would go, yeah, I'm right there with you. And not just people all over the world in our modern scientific age in which we've got to prove absolutely everything via some kind of a method. But guys, this was mystifying in the first century. This was mystifying even to the people who were closest to Jesus Christ. Even the people who like walked alongside of him, watching, at least according to the Bible, the blaze of miracle that was his life and ministry. Even they were mystified. We just heard it. The women come to the tomb on the morning of the third day, And what do they come bringing? Because when you look at not just Matthew's account that we just heard, but also Mark, also Luke, also John, and get the full picture, they do not come to the tomb on the morning of the third day bringing breakfast to Jesus because they believed, as He had said that He would, that He was going to be risen from the dead on the morning of the third day. They come bringing more burial spices so that they can further embalm His decomposing corpse. And they come talking about how are we going to get past the guard and how are we going to get past the seal and who's going to roll the stone away so that we can honor the dead Jesus with more spice. Mystifying. The disciples are mystified too. If you know the story, the women do as they're told and they run off and they find the disciples and where are these guys? They're all huddled up in a room in fear for their life. You know, the Christ is dead and they think maybe they're next. And they come barging in with this story of a stone and it's rolled away and the tomb is empty and, and and they saw an angel who descended from heaven and there was like an earthquake and then there's Jesus and he's risen from the dead. You know, like he said that he would, guys. Just be reminded of that. He said that he would, he's risen, he's actually... And what do the men universally think? Every single one of them thinks that these women have broken psychologically. Like they are delusional. This can't possibly be. Now, Peter and John, to their credit run to the tomb. They go to investigate. And they come back and they tell the group, okay, so here's the deal, guys. Stone is actually rolled away. Tomb is empty. The grave clothes that he was wearing, Jesus, are left behind in the tomb, which is odd. But no angels, no Jesus. Come on, really? Really? At this point, two of the disciples in the room say, hey, you know what, guys? We've invested three years of our lives in this. We thought that he was the Christ, but now we know that he's not the Christ. And we know that he's not the Christ because we've seen other Christs, or at least alleged Christs, come and go. Did you know that? Why don't you know the names of any of those people? It's very simple. The Romans killed them. And so it was understood by these guys that a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah. What happened to Jesus? Good Friday? The Romans killed him. These guys are hanging out in Jerusalem because it's the Sabbath, Saturday, and now it's Sunday morning. And they say, you know what? We're free to go. We're not going to break any Sabbath laws by traveling now, and we're out. See you later. And they don't return until after they personally have experienced a visit from the literally, bodily, physically, actually, no kidding, I'm not joking about this, risen from the dead Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's what the Bible says that they experienced. And it is. But it's what I think he experienced as well. And here's why. Because I think that the biblical account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is actually and authentically the best and most reasonable explanation for the one thing that everyone agrees on. Here's the one thing. Scholars of every kind, Christian, non-Christian, secular, non-secular, supernaturalist, anti-supernaturalist. Everybody agrees on this one thing, and that is that the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. And here's why they agree on that, because everybody agrees that the Romans and Jews desperately wanted to stamp out Christianity and thought that they had done so in the putting to death of Jesus Christ. And obviously, since we're all here, they failed. And they failed for the singular reason that the tomb was empty. As soon as the disciples, these cowards who are huddling, somehow find the courage to start popping off about Jesus, and he's actually risen from the dead, just like he said that he would, morning of the third day, yada, yada, yada. What did they have to do to put Christianity to death? Very simple. Really? Oh, come on, let's go to the tomb. We know where it is. Joseph of Arimathea is one of us. He's part of the body that voted to put Christ to death. Now, he's a secret follower of Jesus, but we don't find that out until afterward. It's his tomb. It's his family tomb. We know where it is. The Romans know where it is. They've posted a guard there. They put a seal on the tomb. Let's go to the tomb, folks. We'll roll back the stone. We'll pull out the dead body. Hopefully you'll bring some spices because it's going to be you know, pretty unsavory. And that's the end of Christianity. And just like all of the other dead and therefore failed messiahs, we would never have heard of the name Jesus. Would we? So the tomb was empty. Everybody agrees on that. It's how it got empty that there's a little bit of disparity. Was it empty because, as the Bible claims, Jesus Christ actually authentically rose again from the dead as he said that he would, or is there some other more reasonable theory or alternative? And the best that years, 2,000 years of scholarship has provided are three different alternatives. I'll start with the strongest of the three. It is that the disciples stole the body of Jesus Christ. There it is. Then they offed it somewhere, I guess, and made up this whole lie. All right, well, then what do we know? Because as we look not just at the Bible, but other documents and look at archaeology and all of these other things, what do we know? Well, we know that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, that he was a wealthy man, that there are several examples of these kinds of tombs all over the place. I've been in and out of a few of them. These tombs were cut. They were hewn out of solid stone. They had a doorway that was typically four and a half to five feet tall, built to code. And it was guarded by a big stone slab, a disc. Also cut out of solid stone and set into a groove cut into the stone in front of the cave. And it would roll downhill a little bit, and then it pivoted in a little divot. Boom, right in front of the doorway. And it weighed about three to four thousand pounds. So then, the body of Jesus was guarded from the disciples of Jesus, first of all, by the stone, but not only that, by the Roman Guard Unit, because the Jewish religious establishment knew that he had claimed that he would rise again from the dead on the third day, so they went to Pontius Pilate. You want to talk about some guys that had had a really bad weekend. I mean, it was riotous, literally crazy stuff going on in the city. They all want to be done with Jesus, and finally they've killed him, and they think that they're done, but they come to Pilate and say, all right, so here's the deal. This guy claimed that he would rise again from the dead on the third day, And uh, what if his disciples steal his body? I mean, like if they steal the body, we're never going to be done with this guy. We're going to have to deal with, you know, his ghost, if you will, forever and ever. And so we need to guard the tomb so that the disciples can't come steal the body. And Pilate said, you're exactly right about that. And he placed it a Roman guard unit there. A custodian is the technical term for it. It's a guard unit between four and 16. And I think since he also set a seal, it's probably closer to the 16 number. Four and 16 highly trained soldiers, each of which you could guard six square feet of land, 36 square yards if you have 16 of them, and they were supposed to be able to hold their ground against an invading battalion. Successfully! Eighteen things these guys were put to death for. One of them was falling asleep on the job. If you fell asleep on the job, here's how they executed you. They burned you alive. How's that sound? That'll keep you up at night, won't it? I mean, think about that. So the body of Jesus, safeguarded from the disciples by the stone, by the Roman guard unit. What else? The Roman seal, which stood for the full authority and power of the Roman Empire. If you broke the seal, okay, well they called out their version of the CIA and the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security and NCIS, depending I guess on who it was with and you know all of that kind of stuff. And then they investigated fully and then they would track you down, wait for it, and then they would crucify you. Oh, but it gets better upside down. Very specific in their means of torture, aren't they? Burned alive, crucified upside down. I mean, like, which one would you pick? You know, I don't know. I'm going to go with neither. (laughs) Lastly, I think the body of Jesus was guarded from the disciples of Jesus by their own cowardice. What's the picture of these guys? They come to arrest Jesus. And what do these guys do? They run. (laughs) Well, that's courage. Peter follows at a distance. He he gets into the courtyard of the high priest and he's watching what's going on. And three times he denies that he even knows Jesus wants to a young girl. And I I have daughters. I know that young girls can be intimidating, but really? (laughs) Think about that. So if you're going to believe that the disciples stole the body, then you have to believe that these cowardly guys somehow found the courage to take on and prevail against the Roman guard unit, to break the seal of Rome knowing all that that entailed, to roll back the thousands of pounds of stone, to retrieve the dead body of Jesus, to dispose of the dead body of Jesus somewhere where nobody would find it, and then, and this is the clincher for me, to gather up and to say, guys, we're going to create a lie that Jesus rose again from the dead, and we're going to do that knowing that it's going to bring us rejection, that it's going to bring us imprisonment, that it's going to bring us persecution, that it's going to bring us poverty, and that in the end we will all of us die torturous, horrific deaths. What do you think? Put your hands in the middle. <laughs> okay, go! And here's the thing that is how they died. What in the world? Peter, we're going to crucify you upside down in five minutes. But here's the deal. You are the preeminent apostle. So we are offering you clemency. We're going to, we're going to free you and compensate you going to put you up in a nice condo in the Mediterranean. We're going to give you sort of a stipend for the rest of your life. Listen, Christianity is driving us nuts and it would be the end of it if you as the preeminent apostle just merely came forward and said, you know what guys, the reality is we huddled up, we put our hands in the circle and we decided to do this. And it actually is not true. We just thought it would be awesome to suffer and lose absolutely everything, including our lives for something that we knew not to be true. He says, crucify me. Why? Because these guys had seen a man defeat death, and they couldn't unsee it. They write this stuff. They give us these stories at the expense of their lives. They write it to us in their blood. So that's theory number one, and you can consider the reasonableness of that. Theory number two, and it just gets weaker as we go, I think, at least. I really do, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, Theory number two is the swoon theory. That means that Jesus didn't actually die, just looked like he died, and then when they put him in the tomb, he revived and somehow got out and got past the guard, blah, blah, blah. So what do we know? Is that reasonable? We know that Jesus was beaten repeatedly and beyond recognition. We know that Jesus had chunks of his beard literally torn out of his face. We know that Jesus wore a crown of thorns, and don't think little rose thorns, think really long three-inch spiky thorns, that was beaten down upon his head. We know that Jesus was scourged, and I'm not going to give you the detail on that because there are kids here, and it is absolutely brutal. And it killed many people just the scourging. We know that He was in such a weakened condition following all of that, He couldn't carry the crossbar of His cross all the way to the place of the crucifixion and so somebody else had to be recruited to help. We know that when He got to the place of the crucifixion, He was laid down upon the wood and they drove nine-inch nails through His wrists and through His feet. We know that He hung there naked in the heat of the middle of the Middle Eastern day, pushing and pulling against these nails, these, these stakes through His wrists and feet so that He could relieve the pressure on his diaphragm and catch his breath until he could no longer push up. We know, or I think, that he then died of asphyxiation. That's how you die when you're crucified. You suffocate. And we know that then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, at great personal expense, came forward apparently as actual followers or secret followers of Jesus, and they go to Pilate and they say, listen, can you just give us the body? We'll take care of it. Pilate says, great, do it. And they come with their servants, no doubt. And the women that you've already heard about, they too were there. And they take down the body of Jesus and then they buried him and according to their customs. Well, what is that? Well, they washed his naked body clean and then they laid him on a shroud that was more than twice the length of his body and they folded it over the top of his head and they tucked it under his feet. And then in the case of Jesus, because they're wealthy men seeking to honor Jesus, They took 75 pounds of burial spices, mixed it into a thick, wet paste, and taking long strips of linen copiously coated with this thick, wet paste, they mummified him. They started with his toes and they wrapped his feet and all the way up his legs and all the way up under his arms and then they pinned his arms at his side and starting just below his fingertips, wrapped him all the way up to his neck and then they took a real long separate thing, again coated with this wet, sticky paste, and they wrapped His head and face. And then they took Jesus and they put Him in the tomb and they rolled the big thousands of pound stone in front. And then the Romans placed their guard unit and they set their seal and so on and so forth. And so then, if you're going to believe that He actually didn't die, but He just kind of revived in the tomb, I guess you're going to have to believe that He survived the beatings, the beard thing, the crown of thorns, the scourging. The crucifixion, oh, forgot something. How did they verify that he was dead? One of the four professional executioners that incidentally by Roman law had to sign off on his death warrant came over with his spear, stabbed him up under the ribs, into the heart. So he'd have to survive that. Then, in addition to that, I guess he held his breath from the time they encased his head at least, until after they put him into the tomb and rolled the stone and posted the guard and set the seal. And so then Jesus somehow survived all of that, fooled the executioners and the people who embalmed him into thinking that he was dead. But he wasn't. So then he revived, somehow got out of all of this stuff, rolled away the thousands of pounds of stone on his own, beat up the guard. I know they were not sleeping. They weren't. And then walked several miles and in that condition presented himself to his disciples. You ready? As the risen Lord of glory. And they believed it. And then he went off and lived a life somewhere else. while the disciples that he loved laid their lives down for a fraud that he really perpetuated upon them. Is that reasonable? Theory number three. Look them up today. They're all there. Theory number three is very simply that the women went to the wrong tomb. And that just kind of set off this whole chain of events in which, you know, we thought Jesus' tomb was empty, but his tomb wasn't empty. Now, there's no explanation for the angel, for the appearance of Christ, or any of those other things. But let's start with the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that they were at the tomb, the right tomb, when he was buried. So it's unlikely they would go to the wrong tomb. But let's say they did. Did Peter and John go to the wrong tomb? Did the Jews go to the wrong tomb? Did the Romans who had a guard and a seal at the right tomb go to the wrong tomb? Did Joseph of Arimathea, who owned the tomb, go to the wrong tomb? Listen, everybody agrees that the tomb was empty. And the Bible comes to us and says, listen, it was empty because Jesus, as he said that he would, rose again from the dead on the third day. And when I apply my mind to the facts of the case, I don't really find that to be all that crazy. And in particular, when I look at what else the Bible says about Jesus Christ, which is what? That He's not just like me or you. He's not an ordinary person, an ordinary man. That He is the invisible, the intangible God made tangible. He is the God-man. And if that's the case, then I would expect as the author of life that if he said, look, I'm going to lay my life down for you, but I'm going to take it up again in resurrection on the morning of the third day, that he would actually be able to do it. Like, what would be surprising and quite disconcerting is if he didn't. So I find the resurrection to be pretty consistent with the facts. And and beyond that, I, I find the resurrection to be consistent with my experience as a person. And and let me interact with that for a second because what you might be thinking is actually Tom, your experience as a person teaches you like it does all the rest of us or so we think that life effectively goes like this. Here's the pattern. There is life, there is death, there is burial, and then what? Well, then there's nothing. Then you get to go to the graveyard. You get to visit the dead. And Tom, of all people here today, should you not be aware of that? How many funerals have you done? How many graveside services, interments, have you officiated? Answer, I don't know, more than I can remember, honestly. But I like to remember those people that I too miss on this day, uniquely. Because let me tell you what I say at those interments, and many of you know this because you've been there. I remind those with faith in Jesus that God's Word and God's world, and He is the author of each, teaches us that the pattern is not for the people of God, life, and then death, and then burial, and then that's it. But it's different. It's a different pattern. Let me illustrate it. Every day the sun sets, does it not? It races across the sky and light, and it brings light and life to all of us beneath it. And then every day it descends in the west. And from the way that God has designed it for us to see it with our feet glued to the ground via gravity, how do we see it? I understand how the solar system works. That's not my point. How do you witness it? You watch it on the distant horizon... And it looks at least like it's sinking into the earth, and as it sinks into the earth, it sprays the sky with beautiful colors of red, incidentally the colors of blood. And as it descends beneath the horizon, the world, the whole world in which we at least inhabit, sinks into darkness, becomes cool. What is that a picture of? The ancients who thought symbolically saw this. This is why the pyramids are located on the west side of the Nile. It's life, death, and burial. And then the whole of the human race panics because we think that's it. The sun died. We'll never see it again. Is that it? No, man. We go about the day. We enjoy the night. Why do we enjoy the night? Because the whole of our lives, every 24 hours, is teaching us that there is life, that there is death, that there is burial, and that there is confident expectation of resurrection. And then at 6.57 a.m. this morning, the sun rose. We even use the right language We get it, or do we? Every night after the sun goes down, what do you do? Well, eventually you go to sleep. So what's the process for that? I'll give you mine. You kick the AC down, you turn the fan on, you want it to be cool. You shut off every possible source of noise, including all of your children, don't you? Dear God, let them go to sleep and be quiet. You close off every possible source of light. You pray that your neighbor's floodlights will not be on all night because that'll mess you up. What are you doing? You're recreating the environment of the grave and then, now listen for this, you get in your bed and you bury yourself under your covers. And then you sink into a state of unconsciousness that is death-like that we call sleep. And you don't sink into it in a panic. If you're me and it's the night before Easter, you take a melatonin and you beg God for sleep. (laughs) Please, Jesus, let me sleep. You didn't do that? Why? Because you know what happens in the morning. You'll get up. And then you'll stumble your way down the hallway to the kitchen where your automatic coffee maker has already made coffee because, be honest, I mean, you're going to get a headache if you don't have it. Nobody wants to talk to you if you don't have some of that. You don't want to talk to anybody else if you don't get some of that. Make yourself breakfast. Where did all that stuff come from? It was all stuff that was once alive, that was cut off from its source of life. That then died and that was then subjected to all kinds of things like being crushed and ground and great heat and all of the stuff we use to cook all of this stuff and make coffee and all of that. And why do we take that into our body? Because we are confident that burying it deep within ourselves, our bodies will take that which has died and derive life from it. Just stop eating long enough and you'll die. That's amazing. That's incredible. That's incredible. Say, saying you take a shower, you get dressed, you go out the front door, you're going to start your day, you walk past flowers and trees and grass and stuff. Where did all that stuff come from? Because you don't need to be an agronomist to understand this, you know this. Seeds that have died, incidentally, and that have been strategically and on purpose planted in the earth. <laughs> Why? Because we all know how they work. They germinate, they come to life, and they come forth from the earth. Do they not? Come on. Plant the right kind of plants. I love to throw this in because we have a butterfly garden on the east side of our preschool wing here at our school. Plant the right kind of plants, you get butterflies. Where did they come from? Do you know that the butterfly is a symbol of Easter? I've seen people actually wearing butterflies today, not real ones, or I would have freaked out. (laughs) That would be weird. A little caterpillar, who I'm just going to say it, is icky. You put him on my arm, I'll scream like a young girl, Okay that crawls, this ugly little earthbound creature crawls up into the bush and he spins himself a tomb. We call it a cocoon. And he doesn't have to go through caterpillar counseling to get up the courage to do this. He understands how it works. And how does it work? After a period of time, he emerges. And he's no longer ugly. He's beautiful. He's no longer earthbound. He flies. What is the pattern? Because it's not life, death, burial, and then that's it every day of your life, multiple ways in the world that God has designed, it's life, it's death, it's burial, it's confident expectation of resurrection, and then lo and behold, there it is. There it is. Which calls you, does it not, to look for the one who defeats death in life. The one, and there's just one, I would submit to you that that's the story your heart was made for. And I think the research backs that up for me, and here's why. Because researchers have indicated that there is a recognizable version of the Cinderella story in every people group and tribe of man. Ancient and modern, at least for those that we have the literature to examine for. I want you to think about that for a minute, because that says something about the human heart. How do all of these different kinds of people in all of these different places, in all of these different ages, with all of these different cultures, with all of these different languages, with all of these different races, all of them effectively bring forth the same story, if that is not an expression of the longing of the human heart universally? So what is the Cinderella story? Well, Cinderella, if you know the story, is trapped in a life that she can't get out of. It's a life of slavery and servitude to her wicked stepmother and her wicked stepsisters who are frankly pretty evil taskmasters, but she lives in a kingdom. And the kingdom has a king. And the king has a son. We'll call him the prince. And it is the heart, the desire of the father who is the king of the son who is the prince that the son who is the prince take a bride from amongst the maidens of the land. And Cinderella, who by the way, as a result of all of her servitude, is covered in soot, is covered in grime, filthy clothes, dirty rags, but underneath was made beautiful through a magical series of events, is able to attend to the ball and she dances with the prince. (laughs) And then the clock strikes 12 and she starts to freak out because her carriage is going to turn into a pumpkin or something. And so she races out of the ballroom, you know the deal, and as she goes, she's in such a hurry, one of her shoes flies off, the Cinderella slipper. She leaves it behind and goes back to this life of servitude and slavery that she can't get out of. And even though there are all these different maidens in the land, the prince... Wants her. So then what's going to have to happen if he's going to have her? She can't come to him. So he has to go to her, which is what he does. He leaves behind all the comforts and privileges of the castle and he enters into the land of the commoner, if you will. And he searches relentlessly for her because he loves her and he will not stop until she is his. And finally, he comes to her house and he doesn't even recognize her because her beauty is so covered over and marred but the slipper fits. And he knows that it's her. And so what does he do? Does he say, oh, good grief, you looked a lot different at the ball, you know? (laughs) Holy cow, ever hear of deodorant? I mean, what's the deal with you? Do these people let you shower? Like, maybe I should go look for someone else. The grime does not drive him away. It does not deter his love. He does what only he can do. He frees her from her slavery and from her servitude. He cleanses and washes and restores her beauty. He takes her to be with him and for forever. What is that if not the Christian gospel? It's the Christian gospel that the heart of man universally is made for and that has produced stories like Cinderella because newsflash, we live in the kingdom of a king and he's created the kingdom and everyone in it. As I've been saying for weeks now, for the singularly greatest purpose in the whole of the universe, which is to live our lives for the singularly greatest being and cause, that's Him. Do you want to live for less? What dignity? And yet we haven't. And so where do we find ourselves? Stuck in a life of slavery and servitude, cover over with the mess that largely we've created for ourselves enslaved to our passions and our compulsions and and our addictions and our selfishness and our self-worship and all of the things that we're looking to for life that only bring us death and yet it is the heart of the king that the son who is jesus take a bride from amongst the people the maidens if you will in this land but if that's going to happen he's going to have to come to us and so then what did he do well we celebrated at christmas He left the privileges and the comforts and the safeties of the heavenly palace and through a supernatural conception in which the invisible became visible, he took upon himself real flesh and blood and entered into the common land of the common man. That's this place. That's me. That's you. And he relentlessly searches for his bride until he finds them. And when he finds them, their grime does not offend him. Their smell does not drive him away. Their problems and issues and addictions don't become so complicated that He just goes, oh, good grief, I'm going to go find somebody easier to deal with. And then He does for us what only He can do, which is what? Taking the perfect life of devotion He's lived and laying it down in love on a cross to pay the fee that we have incurred with the King by living for ourselves. And here's how you know that Jesus is the prince your heart was made for. Because on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He's not another dead Messiah. Graveyards are littered with dead princes. It's not him. He is risen, guys. And you don't have to leave your mind at home to believe that. He's the one that your heart was made for. And here's what he's calling you to do. Simply receive His offer to take you, to forgive you, to wash you, to heal you, to restore you, that you might be His in this life, and then for forever, which is kind of a long time, beyond this life, as part of His eternal family. So that is the offer of the gospel. It really, bottom line, is what we celebrate on Easter because minus the resurrection, there is no gospel. But with the resurrection, there is eternal life and eternal hope. And if you have that life and hope, man, not just Easter, but every day is Easter. And if you don't, it's freely offered to you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You that we live in Your kingdom Oh Lord, I pray that You would give us the spiritual sight necessary to see that, the spiritual ears necessary to hear that. I pray that You would take our hearts, which by nature are hard, and that You would crack them and break them. That You would touch them and soften them. That You would awaken within us not a passion for the things of this world, but a passion for the One who came into this world to rescue us from the things of this world, the things that we've done, the things that others have done, the mess we've made, O oh Lord, there is rescue and forgiveness found in Jesus and brand new life. So Lord, make us to long for that life, break through, give us the faith by which to embrace it. And then for your glory, give us your spirit by which to learn to live it and to live it in community with your people. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being the ones that you have sought and are seeking and that for forever we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.